Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? Whew, it is going. <laughs> <laughs> so, the opinions are finally coming in. Yeah, they are, they are raining uh, opinions. Today on Thursday, as we record, there were three pretty big ones, I would say, that um, comes after the two on Monday. So I think we got about 15 left for the next two weeks for the rest of the term. But boy, was it a blockbuster day at the Supreme Court. Yeah, all those three, I think we we should just dive right into them. Um, I I think the first one I didn't expect, possibly until the last day. But (laughs) Jimmy, you want to take us through that one? Sure. I assume you're referring to California versus Texas. This is the major top line ruling upholding the Affordable Care Act. Uh, This is the third time the Supreme Court has upheld the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act in a major decision like this. And I think you're right that some of the the past two kind of tended to come pretty late in June at the end of the term. But in any event, we got a seven to two ruling um, this time. Interesting. Yeah, this time a, a kind of a wider margin of defeat for Republican states that had challenged the law. Okay, so let's take a step back and kind of just remind everyone exactly what this case was about. Okay, big picture here. We've talked about it on the podcast before, but a group of GOP states led by Texas, they made the argument that when Congress eliminated the penalty for the individual mandate, that's the mandate in the ACA that tells you to buy health insurance, that the mandate then became unconstitutional because it no longer was backed up by Congress's taxing authority. So went the argument. And as a result of the invalidity of the individual mandate, the Republican states argued, the rest of the law should be struck down because of how essential the mandate is to the rest of the law's functioning. Okay, so that was a pretty... Kind of a mouthful. That's kind of the fastest way we've we've been able to figure out a way to say it. But the court said on Thursday this morning that, guess what? We're not even going to reach the merits because these Republican states don't have standing to challenge the law. So, so what was the breakdown and, and why did they find no standing? Okay, so the breakdown is uh, Justice Stephen Breyer. He writes the majority opinion for the seven justice majority Um, whereas in dissent, Justice Samuel Alito writes a dissent joined by Justice Neil Gorsuch. So Breyer's reasoning for why the Republican states have standing is because he says, and the majority obviously agrees with him, that they actually haven't shown how they'll suffer a real injury here. So the states had argued that the individual mandate, its existence in, you know, the U.S. code on the books as part of the Affordable Care Act, it injured them by increasing the number of people who would participate in health programs that would end up costing the states money. So they said this mandate, just by virtue of of its existence, is costing us money, thereby we are injured, thereby we have standing to sue. Um, the, The Supreme Court totally disagreed with that, and Breyer said that the mandate actually has, quote, nothing to do with these other you know, government health programs, the ones that the Republican states had cited, like increased Medicaid uh, services or um, emergency services, hospice services, COVID-19 testing, things like that. Breyer says that the individual mandate isn't contributing to people participating in those um, 
additional government services. So in a in a word, he says basically they have no standing. Justice Alito, I mentioned he dissented. He finds it very hard to believe that a group of Republican states actually have no legal you know, foot to stand on when it comes to challenging the Constitution of the Affordable Care Act. And of Breyer's remarks that, you know, they suffer no injury, he says, can this be correct? The ACA imposes many burdensome obligations on states in their capacity as employers. And the 18 states in question collectively have more than a million employees. Um, Even $1 in harm is enough to support standing, yet no state has standing. So him and Gorsuch are on the same page in thinking that the state should be given the green light to at least get to the merits of the decision here. Now, I think kind of an interesting point that I would note is that um, of all people in the majority, we have Justice Clarence Thomas, who is no friend to the ACA, right? So he writes his own concurrence, and he's kind of explaining himself. He's pretty sympathetic to the views of Alito and Gorsuch. Um, Because remember, I mentioned this was the third time that the Supreme Court has upheld the Affordable Care Act, right? Well, so in one of those early times, the first time in 2012, um, the Supreme Court upheld the mandate in and of itself as an exercise of Congress's taxing power, right? And so now that Congress has eliminated the tax penalty, Thomas is like, you used to argue that you know Congress's taxing power and the individual mandate was like the linchpin of the law, and now the law's defenders are saying that it basically doesn't matter at all and can be just scratched off. Um, but, he says, and here's the important part, there's a fundamental problem with the arguments advanced by the plaintiffs in attacking the act. They have not identified unlaw- how any unlawful action has injured them, right? So he agrees with the underlying legal arguments that the Republican states are making, but he just can't get beyond the fact that he disagrees with the idea that they have any standing to sue. Okay, I, I, I see the path he took there. I know another justice we were kind of like thinking about when we were kind of crystal balling everything was Justice Barrett, and seems like she's landed in the majority. Uh, anything further to say on, on her position there? Just to kind of remind everyone the context in which Barrett joined the court, right? So it's in um, the early stages of the term during her confirmation proceedings, and the senators who are reviewing her confirmation of the court know that this big ACA case challenging the constitutionality of the uh, Obama's signature health law is on the docket and that she'll be able to participate in it. And if you even recall that a, uh, a group of Democrats actually abandoned and boycotted one of her confirmation votes, um, instead choosing to display like life-size posters of, you know, Obamacare or ACA recipients. So this, you know, was a, a, a huge driving part in the political opposition to Barrett's joining the court. And I think it's worth pointing out that she didn't so much as write anything um, to explain her decision to join the majority. She just simply voted along with the majority and and that's that. So, I mean, so, some could argue that that was much ado about nothing, but certainly it didn't seem much ado about nothing for President Joe Biden. He called the ruling a, quote, BFD. Now, I won't kind of go into what that stands for, but it was a reference to... <laughs> what is... I'm sorry, I have to ask. What is BFD? Big blanking deal is BFD, right? Oh! So, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm this obviously is a, not as hip as President Biden on the acronyms I, there. <laughs> I guess not. So 
I actually wasn't sure what this was referring to because I read the tweet too and was like, wow, that seems really random to say. Um, but it apparently is a reference to like a comment that he made to Obama during the law's signing ceremony when he was like picked up on a ah. hot mic. Only in that case, like it was the full, you know, expletive. Um, but in any event, um, like I said, a another great day for the ACA. Um, probably one that isn't so happy for people who have long been challenging the healthcare law, but uh, alas, we we move on. We move on, third time. Uh, let's see if that's the final time the ACA makes it to the court. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yes, uh, there was another big case we were watching, uh, the Fulton versus Philadelphia case. Jimmy, I know this was another one you were watching. So this is actually one that I was not expecting so early in June, um, just because I think that the writing was kind of on the wall for the ACA case. This one was a little bit harder to gauge how the um, the court was going to thread the needle. But um, just to kind of give you the big news here is that the Supreme Court actually handed down a unanimous ruling in favor of a Catholic foster care agency that refused to certify same-sex couples as foster parents. So the holding was... And here was, I thought we were done with unanimous rulings. <laughs> right. So, right, that is a very good point that we'll kind of get to later. But the holding was that the city of Philadelphia violated the free exercise clause of the Constitution when it terminated its contract with Catholic Social Services, which is like a 200-year-old Catholic foster care agency in the city of Philadelphia. Okay, so who wrote the opinion and what was kind of the big breakdown? So Roberts writes the opinion for the court, and like I said, it was unanimous in the underlying judgment. So you had all the liberal justices joining Roberts's majority opinion for the court. Now, I should mention that it is a pretty narrow decision, even though the holding is ostensibly a big win for, you know, quote-unquote, religious freedom interests over, say, LGBTQ rights here. It's a rather narrow one that kind of calls to mind the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision from a few years ago involving the baker who wouldn't serve the same-sex couple who had ordered a cake for their for their wedding. And, and when I say it's a narrow decision, that's because the decision was basically based on the technicalities of the city's contract with Catholic Social Services and how it was structured. It was not the kind of landmark First Amendment holding that completely... Um, speaks for all cases of anti-LGBTQ discrimination in the foster care system. Okay, so it was it was more just kind of parsing the kind of black letter of the contract and what the clauses meant, right? Okay, let me just explain it as best as I can without getting into like crazy in the weeds detail. Okay, so Roberts says that the kind of dooming element for the city's case here is that their contract with Catholic Social Services, you know, it had this anti-discrimination provision in it, but that that anti-discrimination provision also had a discretionary element to it where the commissioner of the foster care agency technically had the discretion to waive the anti-discrimination requirements in certain cases. And now Robert says that because there was this discretionary element and that because the commissioner kind of you know, in his own discretion, decided to terminate the contract and, and continue to enforce the anti-discrimination provision, then, you know, this isn't really a generally applicable law here or one that is neutral. Okay, so just to back up just a teeny bit, the reason I said those words generally applicable and neutral is because under Supreme Court precedent, 
laws that are generally applicable and neutral can survive scrutiny under the First Amendment. So Robert says that because there's kind of a discretionary element here, you can't say that it applies to everyone, that it's generally applicable, because otherwise there wouldn't be this exemption. It would acro- it would apply across the board. And so Robert says, okay, so now we have a case where we're not going to we're not just going to like give this lesser form of scrutiny to this contract. We're going to give like a lot. We're going to give what's called strict scrutiny to this contract. Now he kind of moves on through the elements test and says, what the city did here when it terminated its contract with this Catholic foster care agency was that, you know, the least restrictive means to serve like a compelling government interest. And he answers this question. He says, no, it wasn't. In fact, the government, sure, it has a weighty interest, he says, in eradicating you know, discrimination and ensuring equal protection in the foster care agency. But he says the proof is in the pudding because this contract already has this discretionary element. So if there is, if the commissioner has the discretion to say that these anti-discrimination provisions don't apply, then obviously it's not so compelling that the government can't figure out another way to do it. Does that make sense? Okay, that makes sense. So... He was writing for them for a unanimous decision. Does that mean everyone was happy with this kind of finding? <laughs> Not at all. So as <laughs> you could probably gather from my last answer, pretty technical, pretty narrow. Okay, so there's a faction on the Supreme Court. Um, we've seen um, these guys together on a number of other cases. Thomas, Gorsuch, and Alito fairly unhappy with how the court resolved the case. They said that they threaded the needle too thin. And specifically, Ito's, uh, excuse me, Alito says that after 2,500 pages of briefing and a year, half year of post-argument cogitation, the court has emitted a wisp of a decision that leaves religious liberty in a confused and vulnerable state. And th- the, whole, the whole gripe here, right, by Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch is that the Supreme Court did not take that step further and overrule a 30-year-old precedent and basically say that this whole idea that I was talking earlier about laws that are generally applicable and neutral, them satisfying the Constitution, they think that that should go away. That general applicability and neutrality test, that's what's embedded in the court's 1990 decision in employment versus Smith. Now, conservatives... Religious freedom advocates for many years have been gunning for Employment Division versus Smith and wanting the court to get rid of it because obviously it makes it harder for religious groups to challenge laws that burden their religious exercise. So Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas wanted to see the Supreme Court not rule on these narrow technical grounds, but go the step further and kind of you know make this splashy First Amendment ruling that would rewrite the court's first exercise jurisprudence. Does that make any sense? It does. <laughs> okay. So where are we at when all is said and done here with this case? Well, so I mentioned like before, you know, this is kind of reminds me of the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Now, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, you know, that was a case where the court kind of ducked the core constitutional issues and said the Colorado Civil Rights Commission was a li- it displayed anti-religious animus in its proceedings with Jack Phillips, the baker who refused to place the order with the same-sex couple for their wedding, right? Well, that litigation is kind of still playing out because the court never actually resolved whether it was like a violation of his First Amendment rights. And so that's what Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas are basically arguing is that, you know, by doing this very narrow ruling, at least Gorsuch writes, you're kind of subjecting him 
or subjecting Catholic social services to like litigation limbo, right? Where it's going to continue to be played out in the courts as they, as the city of Philadelphia and the foster care agency kind of maneuver over kind of maybe the wording of the contract and how they can get rid of some of these loopholes and things like that. But reading the reaction of kind of progressives online, it seemed like, you know, their fears were allayed that, you know, the worst had not happened for them in that big splashy ruling. And Okay, just to make one last connection to Masterpiece. Sorry if I'm going a little long here, but it's it's kind of interesting. You mentioned it's a unanimous ruling, right? And it was a unanimous in the judgment, and you can't help but draw similarities to Masterpiece where you have the, the you know so-called liberal justices, those who were appointed by Democratic appointees, in this case, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer, joining the majority opinion by Roberts. And you can't help but just think that this is kind of a, a a strategy to join this narrow ruling in favor of religious uh, a religious organization in order to avert kind of like a landslide First Amendment ruling on the free exercise clause, right? Okay, that's two of the big rulings today. We had Affordable Care Act. We had foster care system in Philadelphia. Let's move on to the third, which is no less interesting, I would say, Natalie. Talk about Nestle versus Doe. Yeah, so this was the case that we've been watching, uh, you know, that alleged Nestle and Cargill were abetting child slavery in their company's operations in Africa. Huge test case as to whether the alien torch statute can be used to, you know, hold some of these big conglomerates accountable for operations that happen, you know, well far away from the U.S. Now, this was one of those very, you know, end of term complicated lineups that we like to see right <laughs> where the justices paired up and divided on various parts of the opinion um and we can get into that <laughs> later well, <But> so <laughs> it, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I i saw the ruling come down and i was prepared to like count the votes and i and i kind of looked at <sighs> what, what, what that lineup was and i just kind of threw up my hands i was like okay never mind <laughs> yeah the, the, the takeaway and, and i know you landed on this because you wrote the, the the news break for it is you know it was a win for nestle and cargill and frankly other major corporations um in essentially a seven to one lineup the justices did agree uh you know that the case simply can't move forward because the alien torch statute um you, you can't sue under that and for it to apply to so-called extraterritorial application, i.e. it can't cover conduct that happens solely overseas, which is right. what was happening here. Well, that seems like a fairly big holding, no? Big holding, yes. Um, you know, I, I think it shuts down the alien torch statute being used in, I, I think, a way that many were, were kind of hoping it might be. Um, it was not the only holding, <laughs> though from the uh, from the majority opinion which Tho uh, justice thomas actually wrote um thomas notably added that the suit also failed uh because to let it go forward would create a cause of action under the alien torch statute um and you know he was basically saying that job belongs to congress not the federal judiciary and this finding as to like we can't create a cause of action under the alien tort statute is where the justices started to splinter. So why does Thomas say that allowing the suit to go forward would require creating a whole new cause of action? So this can get a little bit technical and <laughs> it gets a little complicated with past precedent, right? 
So the Alien Torch Statute is a super old law, 1700s, right? Sure, and, sure. Um, so, you know, over the years, the court has had to interpret how the Alien Torch Statute can be applied in more modern times. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in 2004, there was a case known as SOSA that, that the court kind of opened the door a little bit to certain causes of action or, or, or for the court to basically, you know, interpret or create certain causes of action under the Alien Torch Statute that might not be explicitly in there. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, although, as, as Thomas mentioned, it, it was meant to be, ex- or as Tom, Thomas, I should say, argued, uh, you know, it was meant to be extremely limited, that Sosa gave kind of examples, very specific examples of, you know, violation of safe conducts, infringement of the rights of ambassadors and piracy. Like this was like, you know, how how it might apply the, the Alien Torch Statute to certain international violations, even though international violations isn't quite written into the Alien Torch Statute, right? So, so Thomas basically said, you know, our precedents since Chosa have clarified that we have to refrain from creating a cause of action whenever there is a single sound reason to defer to Congress. Like, it, like Sosa was not meant to be kind of a free for all for courts to like kind of open the door to using the Alien Torch Statute for, you know, for various kinds of suits. Um, like I said, this is where the justices started to splinter. Justices Sotomayor, joined by Justice Breyer and Kagan, you know, agreed that the suit can't live because it didn't, you know, allege a domestic complaint, but they would not, quote, overrule Sosa in all but name, as the Thomas opinion seems to suggest to them. Um, I I don't think we need to go into it much further, but, you know, I'll just note that that Justice Sotomayor's... uh, 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 a reaction was was very sharp uh, to to Justice Thomas. It is interesting, though. It sounds like Thomas is saying that you know the allegations here of aiding and abetting child slavery in you know on these African cocoa plantations is not something that was originally contemplated in the terms of the Alien Tort Statute, and that it's not up to us to allow them to bring these types of novel claims and causes of action that needs to be Congress's job and, and the liberal justices have a different view. So that actually really clarifies that really kind of messy lineup here and why the justices fractured so much. So thank you. Oh, for- but it gets messier. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I thought we were out of the woods. No, we're not. So um, when we were first talking about this case, right? The, the big question seemed to be whether corporations could be held liable under the Alien Torch Statute, right? I remember that. that. Yes, that was what they granted certiorari on. Um, well, the justices basically skirted that question altogether <laughs> with the majority opinion. Um, I will say, though, that Justice Gorsuch, in a concurring opinion, partly joined by Alito and partly joined by Kavanaugh, basically said, like, look, Corporations should not be immune from the alien tort statute, but this is not the right case. Essentially, like I see. we 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 can't let co- the court. He he agreed with the majority that we can't let the the courts keep on thinking that they have the discretion to create new causes of action. Um, now, I I mentioned at the start this was a seven to one opinion. 
<laughs> right. So I wanted to ask you about that because Alito is particularly cranky today. I, it looks like he's his name. He wasn't happy with any no. of the rulings that came out. So what, what was his what was his position <laughs> this time? What, what was the reason for the partial dissent? Basically, he would have taken. No, he, he was a full dissent, I believe. Oh, OK. Yeah, he was a full dissent and he would have taken the opportunity to decide the original question and would have held that. Yes. And would have held that corporations are not immune from the Alien Torch statute. He actually said that the court shouldn't decide the extraterritorial question at this juncture. It kind of pushed back on what Justice Thomas and Gorsuch were saying, that court should um, never recognize new claims under the Alien Torch statute, kind of siding with the Justice Sotomayor um, band of concurring opinion. Uh, So, yes, Justice Lino was not happy with this opinion or frankly, with any of the others <laughs> today. Okay, Natalie, so a lot going on, but just let me know, what is the big takeaway from the Nestle decision? I think the big takeaway is that there's a lot of in-house counsel at major corporations breathing a big sigh of relief right now. Right, but of course, the ATS still does apply to domestic conduct, at least it's true for now yes. when it comes to corporations because the court did not answer that question so maybe they should be you know still tread carefully and still tread carefully deal. but it, it didn't open the door to essentially what could have been i think a real wave sure. of of claims against major corporations kind of using this novel novel approach so jimmy i think that's it <laughs> that's a lot i know we covered a lot of ground right now but i think that that I think we're, we're we're good to take a breath now till next week. Oh, next week? I thought it was summer recess, no? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wishful thinking, I suppose. Um, yes, there are, I think, about 15 opinions left, and we'll be here talking about them um, on the pod. So thanks, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in this week. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our graphics editor, Chris Yates. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review. <laughs>